from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? It seems rather critical now, political conversations with someone who clings to the other opinion. It's become overwhelmingly emotional, or worse, completely stalled. Certainly, we've experienced more division between people than ever before. How many times have we resolved to abandon the idea of a political discussion even before starting one because the ramifications are just too great? Even in our own homes or with our best friends, we've all become completely bullheaded. We conceived of this show, Meet Me in the Middle, as a way to take complicated issues and prove that they're best solved with a view from the middle. Guns, abortion, climate change, the economy, immigration, jobs, coronavirus, taxes, unemployment, presidential powers, congressional oversight, constitutional rights, conversations that hopefully with a modicum of respect and willingness to listen to the other side, put us all in grave danger of learning something, expanding our own perspectives, while maybe broadening theirs. But nothing, absolutely nothing, has been quite as polarized as this president. Now, here's the bad part for me. It turns out that I'm just as guilty as the next guy. I simply can't relate to someone who has certain views, like my friend that believes that his tax rate is more important than your lives. Today we're going to hear from Dr. Peter T. Coleman, the renowned founding director of the Difficult Conversations Lab at Columbia University and the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at Columbia's Earth Institute. What could be more important today than hearing from the multi-award winning author of The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization? And that's our show for Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Let's meet the rest of our panel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, and prolific lecturer, and a beloved professor at Pepperdine University, Ed Larson. Nice to see you zoomed in, Ed. Nice to see you again, even if it's only on Zoom. I'm looking forward to when we can be in person again. And also remotely joining Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who has spent decades in the conflict resolution business. She's been fighting for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials all over the world. Hey, Jane, nice to see you, too. Good to see you, too. And our special guest, Dr. Peter T. Coleman. He's a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University. He's authored over 100 articles and books. He's a member of the United Nations Mediation Support Unit's Academic Advisory Council. And he's been featured in the Huffington Post, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Time Magazine, and a whole bunch more. Peter, welcome. This should really be your show. <laughs> well... Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm uh, eager to, to talk. Why have we reached such new highs, or maybe I should say new lows, and become such a divided society? I think it's an important question because I think it's, it's not well understood. I mean, the path that we're on, the trajectory we're on today is about a 50 to 60 year trajectory. So by some measures, we have been incrementally escalating in terms of our polarization and our Paid for one another since really the late 1960s. And we're got, we got here today because of the culture that's organized around that, which allowed us to elect uh, such a divisive president who just throws gasoline on our fire. Well, I don't really drive it back as early as Peter does. And I'm not, I mean, he may be right, but I really, I worked in Congress when Reagan was president. 
And I saw that, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, they had different ideologies, but they got along civilly. And before that, Jerry Ford got along with people. Those were all people, by the way, who were part of the greatest generation. All those people, they all served in the war. Where I saw a dramatic break was Newt Gingrich in the 90s. I I really saw, because I worked with the Republicans in Congress and you know, the majority leader and the minority leader got along very well. The one was from Illinois. The other was from Massachusetts, Tip O'Neill. They got along. It was really uh, Newt Gingrich who, who came in with the idea to just start throwing bombs and have his contract with America. And that ramped up the partisanship in a dramatic way. And also you saw the rise of divisive national so-called news stations. I don't really call them. I call them entertainment stations, but first Fox on one side and MSNBC on the other. And that provided a national sounding board that echoed what Gingrich was chanting. Interesting. So, Peter, what do you think? Does the media have a lot of, I don't know, blame? I I hate to use that word, but uh, is is the media responsible for, for stoking the divisive powers is it the media's fault that we're as, as divided as we are now? Well, yes and no. So I think what's hard to get our head around is that there is no one source for the pattern of escalation in polarization that we've seen. The data that I was citing earlier that took us back into the 60s and 70s is data by Nolan McCarty that look at sort of legislative voting patterns in Congress and really since back since 1879 but the trajectory has been really since like 1980, people have been crossing the aisle much less to the point where today you basically are at a standstill. So this is this is their data that shows that in D.C. And they see the tipping point. The data shows the tipping point around 1979. And so a lot of people will say, well, it's, you know, this conservative revolution of the Reagan administration that got us there. But I guess what I want to say is that I I tend to think about these kinds of problems in different ways than many. I've stayed very close to the data, but I also am informed by complexity science and by the fact that problems that last this long are always multifaceted and they're always sort of changing. So there, it's true that the media and Fox News and the entertainmentization of media that took place after 60 Minutes started to make profit as a news show. All of those things are certainly a factor, as are gerrymandering, as are you know, uh, the levels of inequality that we have, how we parent our children. There is a variety of things, and depending on who you read, you know, there are biologists that say, well, there's you know, differences in brain sensitivity of conservatives and progressives and, and uh, conservatives are, brains are much more threat sensitive. And others will say, well, it's the sort of value differences. John Haidt's work in The Righteous Mind looks at value differences in conservatives and progressives. And all of these folks are partially right, but also I think partially wrong in that they overvalue the perspective that it's one or two things. Newt Gingrich, in fact, did, you know, change the work week in Washington and and made it a shorter work week so that his folks, his party wouldn't move to D.C., wouldn't socialize and fraternize with the other side. So in some ways, what he did, either wittingly or unwittingly, was begin to degrade the social fabric 
that had kept Washington in a more functional state for a long period of time. So that was a factor as well. People have been marveling about with RBG as they uh, celebrated her life recently uh, upon her passing was that she had some really remarkable relationships with people who had the polar opposite opinion. Yeah, that's right. We, as a, as a nation, are losing the capacity to tolerate differences of opinion. You know, there really is, you know, you're right or you're wrong. And the capacity to tolerate those differences is critical and central to a functioning democracy. And, you know, again, Trump has had a lot to do with that, his rhetoric, his attacks, his type of discourse and, and, and modeling. Well, certainly he has been succeeding by growing the divide. Maybe not as much from 50 years ago, but certainly from the beginning of the 2016 campaign, when we went from, you know, the exception to the rule was a negative campaign against your competitor. And it became almost entertaining how uh, divisive and angry and name-calling became the norm as of the 2016 election. And the primaries started it where people talked about sizes of people's hands and whether or not they were sleepy. And uh, it just seemed that we, we got to a, just a much different level of evil. Jane, do you think that that was a bit of a turning point for us or were we already there come the beginning of those primaries? I think we were primed for it caused by multiple factors. One is I agree with Ed's assessment of when things took a distinct turn for the worse. And it wasn't, it was a combination of what the Republican Party was doing combined with the advent of Fox News and the success that got in ratings, the, the fact that all of our news became ratings driven. I think 20 or more years of reality TV has changed the American public in terms of, we don't think about the subliminal messages that those shows are, are, are sending to a lot of the American public. It's not how you play the game, it's whether you win or not, and that's all that counts. And Trump is a total product of reality TV. Uh, the other one I'd add, just to what has been said, is social media. Because in addition to, with Fox News, you got your echo, and MSNBC, I think they're both equivalent. You get an echo chamber with your own ideas. With social media, you're able to form a community of extremist or in a community of any certain belief. Now, no matter what your view is, from QAnon, I suppose, to another extreme, you can find a reinforcing community beyond where you are. And the ability to form that reinforcing community further reinforces what Fox News and the rhetoric of Newt Gingrich and the counter rhetoric by Democrats. I'm wondering, first, Peter, is this country so damaged that recovery is either impossible or, or may take a generation to fix? It's not impossible. I believe in change. We've, we've been able to recover before from terrible things, and we see that around the world. You know, and we are, I think, fortunately in a crisis in a series of crises, including Trump and COVID and an economic downturn and racial injustice all at once. And those are good conditions for a reset, for a dramatic reset. But I think if we tip into more violence, you know, because there have been escalating incidents of political violence on the streets, documented and elsewhere, the militant group in Michigan was a, a peek at what that might be. I think if we tip into more violence, it then becomes much more difficult to repair. Now, Peter, based on that, and I'm not trying to make the show too political or partisan, but personally, I had never been, because I'm an independent, 
sort of maybe on the right side. I don't know. And I'd never particularly been a Joe Biden fan, even though I knew him when I worked for Congress. But he seems strikes me as having the unique set of skills, the empathy, the working across the lines. Trump's advisor laughed at his, la- as his town hall saying he was like Mr. Rogers. There was Mr. Rogers' town hall. And I said, yeah, that's what it is. And maybe that's exactly what we need now. So, Peter, could you think about, does Biden, despite his age, have the skill set to do the sort of things you're talking about? Well, funny that you asked. The Biden folks have contacted me and asked me, they're familiar with some of my writing and asked me to start to put together some policy briefs on what could happen, what would need to happen if they get get elected in order to repair the divide. I agree with you. I do think that um, you know, given the current leadership and, and given the shock that we're in, what will be necessary is somebody with the moral authority of a Mandela, right, that has enough political support. It, you know, it certainly will help that he's a white man, right, in America, and an older white man probably at that, because mo- more of America will find that less threatening. But he also, as we know, has a, a a story of a human crucible, right? His life has been filled with difficulties and challenges that he's overcome. And so he can really sort of speak to that. He's lived through that. So I think he does have a lot of those qualities, certainly as a symbolic leader. But I also think that he needs to really think about what should come of politics in a new era. As we shift, what does a reset look like? How do we do that? How can we do it in a way beyond him, beyond his symbolism, beyond his rhetoric? I think that's really important, but um, it really needs to be followed up by clear actions, which provide an alternative path from what we're on, because more of the same is just going to get us more of the same. Here we're coming upon an election, and there is actually a, a group of people who feel that violence may be an appropriate reaction to the results of that election. How do we handle that specific problem? Well, you're right. I think that that's been one of the more concerning things is that there are more incidents of political violence and attitudes have been shifting. So there's more tolerance really on both sides of the extremes and acceptance of political violence. And I think that's a terrifying component. Look, I mean, I think the good news, as far as I can read the tea leaves, is that the Trump administration has lost a lot of the active military support. He's lost a lot of the general support. And so he hasn't, he doesn't control state security, you know, or at least that's my read of the situation. So I think that's a good thing because that's a tipping point for autocrats. But he, he's got to somewhat remind you of the pulmonary doctor who has a bowl full of free cigarettes at the door, right? He does. Absolutely. And, and again, I, I'm concerned about some aspects, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I do think the, some of the institutions in this country, certainly the media have stepped up when when needed in order to help expose untruths and the kind of corrupt nature of this administration. But I also think that, you know, what I found heartening in Michigan two weeks ago when this militia w- were arrested is the, 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 um, the press report of the FBI, the, uh, the local state police, you know, the state police and then the local police who all to a person said, we've got you. We're here to protect you. Our job is to protect you from harm like this. And I do think the message that came out consistently across those levels was 
you know, the rule of law will stand here. That's what we represent. We take it seriously, despite whatever your political orientation is, and we'll protect you. And I think that that's a really important thing. And yet the head of the federal government, President Trump, immediately goes to Michigan and starts a chant with his audience about that governor who his own FBI protected, saying, lock her up, lock her up, refeeding that. But I, but I do agree, I don't know if we could survive another four years. I honestly don't know if our republic could survive another four years. But what we've got now is those institutions there. And we do have, I think in some states, we have Republican governors in some crucial states like um, Ohio, who seem to be committed to running a valid election. And if um, and we see an increasing number of senators like Ben Sass speaking out in the strongest words, in the strongest words against the president. I mean, just vilifying. I mean, he's a leading conservative Republican, but the governor of the senator from Texas today stepped aside and says, oh, I disagreed with him on the border wall. Well, he hadn't. Uh, he was on record supporting it, but now he's backing away. And we see the majority leader, and maybe they see this, maybe we have enough people who see this precipice coming. I was also glad to read today in Politico that Vice President Biden intentionally let out of the bag that he his team is vetting senior Republicans for cabinet posts. He's actively yep. vetting the governor of Massachusetts, and he's actively vetting the former governor of Ohio, Kasich. Well, he doesn't let that information out without a purpose. And that purpose sure, would be to reach out across party lines to show what sort of administration he may be ready to offer. And that's an offer that goes to all reasonable Republicans, that you can be a part of what we will bring together. I used to play football. When you played football, you had, when you were on defense, I wasn't good enough to play offense. Yeah, on a number of plays, the play would be pre-planned so that if you saw the offense of the other team, making a move, you immediately went into a new program that was plotted out in the beginning before you went out on the field, worked out in great detail. And if you did your job, you ended up in the right place and maybe you could whack the ball out of their hand. So here we are. And it seems like everything we do as a society and a government feels like we're absolutely surprised by the outcome. I want to ask you, because you seem connected, you got a phone call from someone who really wants to know Help us understand how are we preparing for the possibility that it could go the route of a disruptive and powerful personality that continues to try to degrade our society with his influence? It's hard to tell the future on this, but certainly a Trump loss would be a significant blow to Donald Trump, to Donald Trump's ego and to his, you know, hubris, and to probably his, to some degree, his followership, he will still have a voice. And I, I think that 25 to 30% of the population may still, you know, support him. He is a cult figure in that way. And no amount of information is going to change that. There's the immediate transition and a cri- the, the potential of crisis, the potential of violence, the potential of a contested election, the potential of, of you know, militant groups mobilizing. That's one level of concern. What do we do to prepare for that, Peter? There is a large swath of Americans that feel neglected, left behind, ignored, and poor and frustrated. 
and that's due to a, a variety of things, but the government has not done enough to hear their voices, to respond to their concerns. And so I think that's one of the things that I propose to the administration is that, A, if they get into power, they need to have a significant reset. They need to really call for a national reset because I think that one of the things we learned from studying complex systems is that you know, new resets provide opportunities, particularly when you have such a tumultuous time where the status quo feels untenable to more and more people. You know, the, the more in common group that studies polarization have found that somewhere between 86 and 90% of Americans are just exhausted, fed up, and want something different, right? And that's positive. It's positive that there's so much misery in the middle, you know, because that is a foundation that you can build on. We're going to take a 30-second break, and we'll be right back with you. And we'd like you to talk about some of the specific actions that would help us in that reset. We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from... The she buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones beauty that are of worth. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life, and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com/slash a moment of your time. We're back with Peter Coleman, Jane Albrecht, and Ed Larson. Jane, let's kind of go to you because you and I have had conversations in the past about what this reset can mean, and you've had some pretty good opinions about it. So how do you feel we can reset? Because we're, we're so diseased right now. I think your view that that the key to all this is getting rid of Trump is partially correct and partially incorrect. Getting rid of Trump if he's not reelected is like taking the alcohol away from an alcoholic. It's the first step in a long process of recovery. You can't recover unless you get rid of it, but it's only the first step. If Trump leaves office, yes, there's possibility he could start Trump TV, but the real problem is not just Trump. There's a huge conservative infrastructure within the, the Republican Party, and by that I mean extremely right wing within the Republican Party that will very much fight to keep in power and stay in power. And so this battle is not going to stop when Trump leaves office. Hopefully, we'll begin to turn the corner. In terms of specific things we can do, what Peter talked about was very true. A huge uh, chunk of the population feels that they are not heard, that it's not working, that the system isn't working for them. Peter, what, what do you think needs to happen in order to get people to think that the system is working for them? The research on power differences and dialogue processes suggests that people that feel disenfranchised respond particularly to having their story being heard and, and respected and, and responded to. But that in and of itself is an important component to changing attitudes. Then, of course, you need transparency and follow-through in what you do. So I think part of what would be useful in a, in a national, what I would call a radical listening tour, is using a variety of different platforms to listen to and hear about the grievances 
um, you know, at the national, state, and local levels, and then feed that back into into you know concrete proposals that can start to address some of these concerns. I think at this point in our time, when you have again both Bernie Sanders folks and the Trump folks saying to us, you you know you don't hear us and you don't care about us, I think we need to sort of take that call seriously. Peter, I agree that being heard and truly being listened to is a really important step. But if action that isn't followed by very serious action, it will, you know, it's like a couple that's going through couples therapy. You can talk, you can listen to each other, but if the problematic dynamic doesn't change, you're going to be right back the same place. The underlying problem in our system, and it's grown over the last 30, 40, 50 years, is that our system of government nationally is not being responsive to its constituencies. What do I mean by that? It all comes down to the role of money in our government. Uh, When you've got a situation where, what, 90% or more of American public thinks something should be done to uh, control gun violence, and you have had horrific incidences from Sandy Hook to the Parkland High School, and you cannot get action out of the government, there is a reason for that. It's because the, the way our elections are funded and the way they're paid for is such that too many people who are elected to Congress cannot take certain votes that reflect their own constituencies. Until and unless we address that, nothing we do is going to work. I agree with Jane completely. I think she's spot on that that is a major significant problem, probably in our culture, in addition to our government. You know, I think the profit before people is a pathology that exists in a lot of different spheres and government is a, you know, is a place where that shouldn't be, but, but is. What I've proposed to the Biden administration as another branch of a strategy is to not reinvent the wheel and sort of propose some new programming, but to identify the bridge building organizations within communities and within sectors, because there are groups that work in politics and work in the media, like solutions journalism and work in other sectors to really try to build bridges when there are vast ideological differences in order to affect reasonable policies and practices. And so I've been recommending that those folks be identified, organized, and scaled. Because in some ways, it's a way of thinking about our problem as, you know, that we have a sick body politic. And so what we want to find are the antibodies within our system that are already working effectively within our system and do what we can to support, encourage, and scale their impact. Because that, you know, they're much likely, much more likely to be effective at their levels than we will be coming in from a national perspective. So let's talk about a couple of the things, Peter, that you have mentioned online as uh, good first and second steps, such as a new composition of the cabinet around the new president. Well, again, I, th- I think you mentioned that that there is some word that Joe Biden has been vetting. Republicans in different spaces that to consider for his cabinet, and I, you know, this is something that that Abraham Lincoln was, you know, known to do, and Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote about in Team of Rivals. That really, what Lincoln did is reached out to who he thought were the best, smartest people, um, and tried to bring them together and hold them together, and that was, you know, critical to navigating, you know, uh, extremely difficult times. Did it work? Uh, well, it you know worked as long as he lived. <laughs> you 
So, Ed, did that work for Lincoln? Was he able to develop consensus and a solid method of moving his policies forward? Of course not. We had a civil war. He did not reach <laughs> out to Democrats. He only reached across the aisles to other Republicans, a range of Republicans, his rivals within the party. And the Democrats were ready to kill him. I mean, the Copperhead Democrats took over in Ohio and McClellan, and there was the most vicious press you ever saw. So, no, it didn't work for Lincoln. And it ended up, of course, he got his head blown off. Yeah, yeah. see, Peter, I just knew we could get Ed's feathers in a bunch. So. <laughs> good, good. Peter, we're going to take another very quick break, only 30 seconds. So hold your breath. And by the time you have to exhale, we'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about your new book that's coming out next year, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, because I want to know what do each one of us have as a responsibility to try to stitch together this society going forward. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. We're back with Peter Coleman, Jane Albrecht, and Ed Larson. I want to talk about your new book, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Let me start with, do you think we will? I think we can. I think that we have the possibility. Um, I think that, you know, what happens in the next month will determine a lot of things, whether we slide into more hostility and violence. I mean, I think ultimately, I think we'll recover. Ultimately, I believe in the institutions that we have uh, in this country, but I think it will be much more difficult to do if we have four more years of Donald Trump and or if the election goes in a way where violence, um, you know, significant violence is triggered. I'd like to close our show by reading one of Peter Coleman's quotes which I think is a, is a, a apropos end, and maybe he'd even like to comment on it a little bit. He said he'd like to see more done to build bridges between ordinary Americans so that conservatives and liberals are reminded of one another's humanity and learn to treat each other civilly again. I think that's beautiful. I, I don't know who said that, but I <laughs> applaud the sentiment. <laughs> I do too. Thanks to Jane Albrecht and Ed Larson. I appreciate you guys joining us. And Peter Coleman, how do people follow you? Good question. I am on Twitter, so you can follow me on Twitter. And the new book has a website, and it's called The Way Out of Polarization, one word, dot com. So you can go to the book's website. There's a lot of sort of preliminary information on that and blogs and press. The book will come out after the inauguration. We can change, believe in change. We've done it before. We can do it again. And, and go out and find somebody who differs from you and learn and listen to them. For those listeners that want to hang around after the credits, I'm going to ask Peter and Jane one more question. Ed hates this question because he prides himself as a historian. He doesn't like looking into a crystal ball. Meet Me in the Middle is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley, mastering by Michael Kennedy. Our executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please hit the subscribe button so you can easily find our next episode. Hold on, A.J., hold hold the music for a second. We have that one last question, and I'd like you to, Peter and Jane, to look into your crystal ball, because I would like a very specific 
descriptor, as you would see in the front of a novel that sets a stage, sets a, an environment. And I want you to describe December to us of this year. Jane, you first. Oh, wow. That's an impossible question. I'd say it will either be a month of considerable jubilation and a big exhale if Biden wins. I think it will be the middle of a, a long, dark winter for many if he doesn't. Uh, jubilation for some. Either way, we're still going to be in the middle of the pandemic. Hopefully, we will begin to turn the corner. I uh, would steal from Dickens, and I think it's the best of times and the worst of times. Because I think, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, either way, it's going to be either fantastic and celebratory or a major loss to your sense of dignity and possibility. So I, I see December as that. And Bill, you don't get off the hook on this one. So it's a Wednesday night and early in December, and we're going to turn on Stephen Colbert. And the election has actually been called because it took a long time to get to the point where we would get to a victor. And he stands up and he's about to deliver his monologue and he sits down and he exhales and a smile comes to his face and he says, I actually don't know what to say other than thank you. And that group exhale that you talk about will be offset by a new set of problems that is covered in the news. Because let's be honest, most news sources are funded by commercials, which are valued based on the size of their audiences. So they're going to look for the most outrageous story they can find, which will include violence, unfortunately, which will include objection, which will include lies, accusations, and a whole set of new challenges. And the question that I can't answer about December is whether we as Americans will turn to each other and say, this is a new time for all of us. And I'm inviting you back in my homes, or at least back on my Zoom, and celebrating that our humanity, appreciation for each other, and our goals are actually the same to bring America back to what we have all envisioned was our advantage and our global reputation. And I believe that all of that will be a very complex December. I knew you would have the best yeah, prediction of fantastic. all. Fantastic. Peter, you get the last word on what a lame duck December could look like. As I said, it could be terrifying and it could be promising. And so I'm, I'm gonna put my money on promising. Okay, I'll take it. We'll see you next week, everybody. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.